Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. Have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day brings us all together. Marvel. your hosts, Boo and Sean. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Few with myself, Boo, and the ageless Sean, Shawnee Sean Sewell. G'day, Sean. How are you, mate? Great, Boo. How are you, mate? I'm good. I'm good. You're looking exceptionally fit. I feel like you've embarked upon some sort of rejuvenation program or something. What's, what's going on there? I don't know, just uh, gradually shifting diet, exercise, movement, all that sort of stuff. And rather than trying to make a massive change and then rebelling against it, actually doing uh, things, you know, gradually over time. So it's definitely made a difference. I I feel probably, I'd say better than I did 20 years ago. So uh, it's a good sign. Nice. One of the few that's exercising in winter. (laughs) Well, I live in Noosa, mate, so it doesn't get that cold. Never gets cold. Uh, Well, I'm really excited. I feel I feel like I'm going to be a bit of a third wheel today, to be honest, on on this podcast with this incredible guest, because you and Deb have already had a bit of a bit of history in terms of uh, having heard her story and shared it with the Inner Circle crew, and obviously it struck a chord to get an invite on the few podcasts is is way up there. I think we had to bump Mike Tyson for this one, <laughs> and rightly so. So I'm going to hand over to you, man. I, I know I normally do the intro, but it's all yours today. Why don't you introduce our uh, today's awesome and inspiring guest? Absolutely. And as you said, you know, we recently had the pleasure of Deb supporting our Inner Circle event and coming and speaking to our members, a bit of a story, a bit of her life, her, her philosophies, her approaches, you know, struggles and, and adversities that she's overcome to create the life that, you know, become one of the few where she's had the opportunity to effectively create the life she wants and has a massive passion for for business, for doing deals and for building incredible teams. So without any further ado, welcome to the show, Deb Farnworth Wood. Great to have you on board. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to see you again. Thanks, Deb. Thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely brilliant. Now, Deb, before we get into this, we know you're a superstar, serial entrepreneur, done some wonderful stuff, but just looking at at your your history, are you originally from Wales? No, no. I'm from, um, so I was actually born in Kenya. But my parents were from Lancashire in England, so I spent probably the greater part of my childhood years in Preston in Lancashire, and that's where the voice comes from. But I actually spent much longer in the southwest of England, which is kind of just below Wales, yeah. And it's not a town many people would spend a lot of time in, but I actually spent a lot of time in Preston. I met someone on a ski trip, and he and his wife lived in Preston. So we ended up, I lived over in Lincolnshire and then up in Yorkshire. But it's an interesting place, the UK, isn't it? What did you learn about life in the UK? Because I, I have an opinion of the UK, and I think it's a little bit tougher than what life is is here in Australia. What was growing up in the UK and Kenya, obviously? What was that like for you, early years, formative years? Yeah, so I was born in Kenya, and um, but I actually left there when I was about three, so I've got no real memories of Kenya. I'm told that I spoke Swahili until I was sort of well into my sixties and sevens, and. When I was a teenager or sort of about 20, I had a boyfriend who told me I spoke Swahili in my sleep, but um, I, I can't remember any of it now. The Growing up in Preston, we were a very working class family, so a very normal family. My mum and my dad separated, so I was um, with my mum who was a single parent. 
yeah, very working class town, very normal upbringing. Definitely a lot different to Australia. I think Australia's, apart from the good weather, has got a different approach to life. You know, I come from that background where you work really hard, nose to the grind. And if you're lucky when you retire, you can have a good time. So kind of a different philosophy here. What brought you to end up in Australia, though? Like, obviously, you've, you've been in a few different places. You've lived in a few different places. What ended up bringing you down under? When my husband and I got married, we decided we were going to get married in Australia, mainly because a really good friend of ours got married in England, although to her Australian partner. And we we sort of hosted the wedding for them. So when it came for time for us to get married, they kind of said, well, why don't we reciprocate? You can get married here. So we came and got married in off just on Majimba Beach, actually, in um, the Sunshine Coast. And my husband just immediately fell in love with the lifestyle here and the the water, the sand and all of the rest. But at that time, I didn't really think it was so great. It was a beautiful place to have a holiday, but I couldn't imagine living here. It was much quieter at the time. So we're talking 1993. And then for the sort of next 15 years, my husband nagged and nagged and moaned. And every time he got the opportunity, would say, can we go live in Australia yet? And eventually I reached the decision that it was his turn to have something his way. So I agreed and he wanted me to retire and he was retiring too. And so we decided that we'd retire here. But um, I got bored in retirement very quickly. How long did retirement last the first time around? About six weeks. (laughs) (laughs) And that was probably a stretch too, I imagine. Yeah, the first few weeks was really exciting because we were looking for somewhere to live and finding schools for the kids. So I I wasn't exactly sure of things to do and I didn't have any time on my hand. But then once all that was sorted out, it was kind of, now what do I do? And I'm so fair-skinned, you know, going to the beach every day was not an option. And going out for lunch every day was just not my lifestyle. So I was, and I didn't know anybody and I didn't know anything here. I suppose the biggest change for me was I went from being really well-known in my field and really good at what I did in the UK. And I used to speak at conferences there and I was written in the magazines and so on and so forth. And I came here and I was completely anonymous. And, you know, that seemed like a good idea at the time. And then when reality hit was, oh, now what do I do? Did you feel that that might have bruised your ego a little bit at the time? It's like, oh, shit, suddenly I've become anonymous again. How did that feel? Yeah, slightly bruised ego, but it was actually more about what's my sense of purpose now? Now what do I do? And um, and I found myself in a position I've never been in before, whereas I suddenly had to credential myself everywhere I went. And the number of people who, it's a lot more chauvinistic here, I would say. So the number of people who'd look at me like I'm some crazy girl who thought she could do things that she couldn't do was quite alarming. So suddenly had to, I suppose, stop reproving myself in a way that I'd had to do 20 years before in the UK. So it was tough. Tell us a little bit about your your journey into entrepreneurship. I mean, that's the bit that really got me interested in your story and your your background is what you've actually done in the business world and um, how you've you've applied your skills and and background and learnings to multiple different industries and businesses. You know, obviously you're in Australia, you're retired. Let's go back a step. You know, what were you doing prior to that in business, and then what did you start to do here in Australia? Sort of the 18 years before I came to Australia, I was in business with a group of doctors. And I suppose that would be the bulk of my career, as you call it. But obviously, it was business ownership. And the steps that brought me to that were a little varied. So I'd done some hospitality. I'd done retail. 
Um, I'd worked for a few of the big shed companies and done um, some IT work in terms of systems development and, and uh, systems and procedures development. And I'd done store opening and I'd trained. I was a regional trainer. I used to mentor managers who came into one of the systems I worked for and train them as well. So I'd kind of done a bit of everything. And I think I was very lucky that I this was sort of, would have all started in the 80s. It was a time when you could, a bit like you can now, you could walk in and out of job on the day when you wanted to. So it was very easy to hop from promotion to promotion and company to company. And I was able to, in a very short space of time, gain a lot of experience in just about every part of a business. So, I, you know, I could do accounts. I understood cash management. I understood tills and sales. At one point, I had 250 staff out of season and then 450 staff when it was Christmas. So I'd done a lot of staff management. I'd done goods inwards and good outwards and I'd done systems. So I had a collection of skill sets, probably jack of all trades and master of none, but a great overview. So when I went into business with the doctors, I was the first non-GP to be a partner in general practice in the UK. Had to get the rules changed to do that. And then I was with this incredible group of people who were full of ideas and full of great ideas, but not really in a position because they were GPs, they were seeing patients every day to deliver those. So my skill set was a perfect alignment, really. I kind of just really figured out everything and what I didn't know I'd ask, you know, it's that simple. Although I was with them for 18 years and I was the managing partner in the business, Every six months, I was doing almost a different job. So we were buying a pharmacy and I was developing the pharmacy or we were bringing a robot from Germany to speed up our dispensing. So then I was a technical person for six months. And the role just changed and evolved as we went along. How do you think the ability to be adaptable has helped you in your, your business career or your overall career? Because you've obviously, by the sounds of it, moved between very varied and different skill sets, but that must come with the ability to be very adaptable and willing to just quickly immerse yourself into something and learn something new. Yeah. And it's, I mean, two things. It's not just that I'm willing to do it. It's that I get bored if I don't. So so part of that is I'm constantly looking for the thing to do next. In fact, you know, right now I'm looking for things to do next already. So part of it, you know, if it wasn't an idea that came from one of the other partners, then it would have been my ideas that would go and it kind of alternated between them, to be honest with you. And so the other side to that is to do that, you have to be able to train and coach the people beneath you so that they can take those roles from you for, for you to leap onto the next one. And I was taught that at a very early age. One of the first managers I ever worked for, my first or second day with him said to me, your job is to learn this and then teach someone else it so you can do the next thing. And that's the way I've operated all the way through. And I love that philosophy because you know, one of the things that we teach from, you know, in a circle group and, and the focus is teaching people to create a freedom business. And unless you can get someone else to do the things you were doing, you're never going to be free of your of your business. So it sounds like, you know, obviously learning that at a very young age would have been hugely beneficial. So so you had that partnership and obviously it sounded like you had some great people there, but all good things potentially can come to an end. What happened towards the end of that situation where it actually got you to change where you're at, change what you were doing, you know, as far as the partnership is concerned? Because I know that a lot of people ask me that question is, oh, I think I'm thinking of joining with this person or bringing this person into my business and it's going to be the best thing since sliced 
sliced bread. And often it's not because of the complexities of having partnerships. So 18 years, that's a long time too. Like that is a, that's a serious commitment into that sort of structure. That's like a longer than most people's marriages. Yeah. In truth, it felt like a few years. You know, when I actually looked back and went, wow, it's almost 18 years. It was, where did those years go? But obviously in between, I had children we, Sean and I did lots of property renovations and property flipping. And her husband's name's Sean, just just to remove the confusion there, because people once people at the at the event were like, "Hang on, Sean." Oh, sorry. <laughs> what was it, Deb, that made it feel like it was always interesting in terms of inverted commas work? I suppose I am an, an you know forever learning, so I really do enjoy taking a challenge on, learning everything about it. I like immersive learning, so I like to just focus on whatever the new thing is and drop everything else. So that meant that I was always doing a different job pretty much. Um, I got the opportunity to be involved in things like the Prime Minister's Office of Public Reform and go do think tanks with them and rubber windmill scenarios, which were kind of strategic planning events. I got to speak at conferences. um, We set up a not-for-profit we did some amazing things with health service funds, which meant that the public money got spread further, more people got treatments and um, faster. So it was kind of a whole raft of things. Plus, we also did some private business things and just built an empire, really. And um, the group were all amazingly flexible in what they allowed me to do. So if, if I decided I wanted to go off and do a consultancy job for a few months, I could go and do that. All the money just went back into the partnership, but I had a good time doing mm. something different, and they knew that kept me interested. It also kept me in the thick of what was going on at national level as well in terms of the NHS. How did that start, though? Because if you look at the research around new businesses, new ideas, statistically, it's fairly poor, right? Like doing something new is about a 5% chance of success, new business maybe 10%. Like what was it about this one that made it sticky? So you mean the partnership business? Yeah. I think the people were really unique. I look back now and I think you, I could probably never find a similar group of people to that again. So we had a huge trust sort of ethic that we all did the right thing by the practice. We never really fell out. We only ever had one row and that was after 15 years we were allowed a sabbatical. And when it got to my sabbatical, they didn't want me to have it because they didn't want me to go away for a year. And that was the only falling we ever had out because I was I was furious. And they said, oh, you're not replaceable. So if they had a sabbatical, they, they would bring a Dr. Lowe come in. And I had arranged a management consultant to come in and cover me, but they didn't, they didn't like that idea and they didn't want me to go. But apart from that, we never fell out. We ran everything in our business was done by the majority vote. So the majority always won. I'm assuming, Deb, that it was because you guys were values aligned. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I suppose that's the best way of putting it, yeah. You had the same purpose and goal. You were aligned on values of who you were as people and how that yeah. how you all showed up. And I think everyone everyone must have been successful as well. Like You must have been winning and, and succeeding a lot because no one really wants to hang around if you're not kicking goals. So I presume everyone pulled the equivalent amount of weight. Maybe you pulled a bit more sitting there in that MD role, but I'd imagine that was part of it as well. Like it was a fun ride because it was successful. Yeah. I think we all respected that we all had different aspirations for ourselves. So some of the GPs were wanted to be trainers. Some, you know, had special interests in particular illnesses. And so someone is to be full-time, someone wanted to be part-time. So we just made the system work 
we all had a say. We would we did everything on a majority vote. I would never say we all ever agreed on everything all the time. But if a particular partner was outvoted, you know, for any particular motion, we would just suck it up and, and know that next time we'd probably get what we wanted. The doctors were all very passionate about being doctors. So with the exception of just two or three of them, they're not, they weren't necessarily that interested in the business other than were we getting paid and making money, I guess. And they were happy to leave a lot of the business matters to the few partners that were interested in money. And similarly, obviously, I never got involved in any of the medical stuff because I'm not a doctor, although I did actually sometimes get involved in things like service side of being in medical practice. So I might get involved in complaints if there's a a complaint or something like that. So that was how it worked. So let's fast forward. You've left the partnership behind. You've moved to a new country. You're now infamous as opposed to famous, for want of a better term. And what do you do next? You're here. You get here, you retire for six weeks, and then you're bored. So to actually get here, I discovered the fastest way to get a visa to live in Australia was to buy a business. And um, one of the last things I'd done before I was leaving England was actually we started a fledgling aesthetic clinic. So we sort of did Botox and fillers, and we, we were looking at lasers and things like that. And I'd also investigated or done the due diligence, actually, on an aesthetic practice that was near us. And... Um, the idea would have been to move that into the medical centre. But around that time, we had two or three of the more senior and older partners were getting a little bit, I would say, more cautious because they were approaching retirement. And there wasn't a huge amount of enthusiasm for the for having a laser clinic in the, um, in the practice. And so with that knowledge, and I had this really firm belief that this was going to be big, and boy, I was right, but this was going to be a big thing. I looked for an aesthetic practice here to buy. And that was the one that I found was the original Australian Skin Clinic, which was just one clinic at the time. So when we moved, I had this notion that it would be run under management because when I bought it, it came with a manager in it and that I would be retired, but I'd potter in and out when I felt I needed something to do. So that was kind of the idea. But after about six weeks, there was also talk about the GFC, which at that time was biting down more in the UK and Europe than it was here at that point. And I suddenly thought, you know what, maybe I should go back to work and take care of this business, look for the opportunity in this. What did you see though? So like when you, you go, okay, I've got these set of glasses from all my experience, my background, knowing all these different areas of business, working in a partnership that has all sorts of personalities to deal with. You're now involved in this business. You're, you're looking at this business to go, okay, what are the opportunities? I want to understand your thought process that you went through to actually help to identify those so that people listening to this podcast can be like, shit, that's how you do it. That's how you look for an opportunity in a business. Well, I mean, that thought process was already in my head from England. So this is what started the interest in these sort of clinics. And that was, I had this memory when I was probably about 12 or 13, my mum meeting me from school one day. And the parents of one of my school friends was chatting to my mum. And after she walked away, my mum made this comment about how she had more money than sense, which is a very northern expression. So she said she had more money than spent sense because she spent so much on her hair and she'd had her hair streaked. Now, that's something we do every single day here. I mean, just about every woman does something to the hair. But back then, not many people did. And I'd looked at that and thought, you know what? One day, everyone will have Botox and fillers in the same way that everyone now has streaks and colours and perms and all the rest. And that was 
an absolute conviction I had early on. And I can't say it was given to me by anyone. It was just an occurrence in my head that this is the way that would go. And in fact, that's been the case. Saying that, only 2%, less than 2% of people have had Botox so far. So there's still a huge, um, huge scope there. But the point when I bought that one clinic, it was not common. It was secret women's business. Our customers didn't talk about it the way they do now. And it was, in fact, you know, one of the things we did was we took it into shopping centres and that's what made it much more high profile. Yeah, people people didn't talk about getting Botox or fillers or something like that. It was just like, well, you look different. Oh, yeah, I've uh, got a new exercise regime or something. It, was, it wasn't really normal. Yeah, people still don't really talk about it, do they? Not to the men, I find. So back then I'd go to lunch and you'd sit across from someone who's completely unmoving in the face must have had a hundred unit face and they would swear I would never get that done whereas now they kind of know we can tell so no women don't make those comments to me but I find a lot of women are happy to talk about it to the girls but not to the boys that makes sense yeah and one of the other interesting approaches Deb you've taken here is like a lot of entrepreneurs think you've got to come up with some technology idea right and then I'm in the tech space and tech 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 your approach is quite different, and, I, and I, I think the approach you took is probably the the smarter one, which is actually to buy a business and build it rather than go through the three years of will it work, won't it work. I mean, by the time you look at the investment and capital that you put into a startup, pure startup, compared to the, the capital and debt that you can secure to acquire a, an existing business, you're probably better off taking something that exists now and making it better, which it sounds exactly like that you did. So what... What was it about that mindset to buy and grow a business rather than just start one completely from scratch? Like, what what was your thought process there? Yeah, so I think I mean I've done both in you know in, in my lifetime, and actually I feel like I can do both. But you come to a bit of a wisdom where, as you say, you realise the smarter move is to buy an existing and make it better. It's like hitting the ground running and taking it further faster. And I think when I bought the first Australian skin clinic, I wasn't really convinced I would open any more or develop it. Like I said, it truly was just for visa, albeit that that thought didn't last too long. Growing Australian skin clinics was really fast, but I did the hard yakka first. So I actually spent about three years before we launched the first franchise honing the model, making sure it was profitable, eliminating treatments that were either too difficult to do or didn't make any money or the ones that were offered by too many people. So, you know, there wasn't such a great market for them. So there was a lot of, there was probably three years. I still had that hard three years, but it was a different type of hard. It wasn't about proving the business would work. It was, it was entirely what you say. It was making the business better. Elaborate how you then took that from a single location. What was the decision to then go, you know what, I reckon we can expand this thing and expand it quite substantially. Yeah. Yeah, the business was way too complex. So there was about 50 different treatments we did. We had about seven grades of staff. Training was a nightmare. We had a whole store room in this little clinic with a store person was need to manage all the different consumables and orders and things that we needed. And to replicate that as a franchise or even as a corporate clinic would be very difficult. So we scaled down the treatments. We looked at what was the most profitable. We looked at ones that were the safest. We ruled out ones that were just either too hard because they needed a doctor level and doctors were harder to get than nurses. 
Um, and we weeded out things that were just straight beauty that everybody and their dog could do. Also, we had a 14-room clinic that was difficult to replicate, so we made it a five-room operation. So all that background work was done, and there was a lot of a lot of analysis, a lot of data, a lot of planning, and, and then we opened our first franchise. And the idea was the, the first one we would run for a year. It was in a shopping centre. It was a five-room clinic. And we would see how that worked for a year. And then if that if that was successful, then we'd look at the second one. But the reality was the day that one opened, one of my – and the franchisee in there was a staff member, and uh, and I maintained 50% of it, so she bought half and I bought half. And the day that one opened, we were offered another site. So that was in Helensville, and we were offered a site in Mabina. And another staff member came to me and said, I want that Mabina site. So the second one, the first one opened, I think it was the – October or November, and the second one opened in March. And then we opened, I think, three more that year. It just went really quickly. I, I was in Sydney uh, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, uh, in Castle Hill, in Castle Towers, and walked past one of them. I just thought, oh, there's one of those uh, one of those franchises right there. How many did you expand it to, like when you, you when you when you've grew it to its, I suppose, its largest? Yeah, so I grew to twenty four full Australian skin clinic franchises. And then I merged. Then I um, we did a merger with another company that brought in another twenty four. So that went to forty eight. Actually, no, I think those numbers are skewed. It was twenty four when we first started speaking to them, but when we merged, it was sixty. And some of those were in New Zealand as well. And then what did you do? What did you do next? Did you end up exiting that that business yeah. at some stage? Yeah. So I exited that. I sold that. Uh, sold my shares after that in two thousand and nineteen. And then sort of... Was that to retire again? Yes. <laughs> Unsuccessfully <laughs> And how again. long did it last this time? A bit longer. Well, it, it didn't fully retire because I actually kept that original clinic. So the original one I owned the building off. So rather than complicate matters by selling that and being the landlord to the people who bought the rest of the brand, I decided I would just keep that clinic. And I rebranded that. And it was still at that stage only working on half the floor space that it had originally started out on. So the upstairs I had offices in. So um, I did just some speaking and mentoring and coaching for kind of a bit of a hobby. I wouldn't say hobby because I was doing it seriously, but, you know, not trying to make a full-time job out of it. Then I this little skincare company called Valor, it's a men's skincare range, caught my eye one day. And I saw it in the shop made some inquiries, Googled it, and it turned out the brand was for sale. And I thought, oh, it's got my name on it. So I bought Valor, which is a sort of very hipster type beard and uh, skincare brand for men, born and bred in Byron Bay. So I took that on. And for about a year or two previously, the former owner of Rosada had been talking to me, asking advice on building the business looked to see if I was interested in going into business with her, which I didn't think was a good option. And then she came she came back to me at that time and said, did I fancy buying Asada? And I'd known her about 10 or 12 years. So I knew quite a lot about the business. And I thought, you know what, this is a really good opportunity to take this on. So Asada was just purely makeup. But by then I'd already started to develop another skincare range. And so um, we were selling that in our one clinic and it was really successful so like everybody was loving it so I decided I could rebrand that to Asada and launch that as part of the Asada company which is what we did. 
I would say we because we're inclusive, but um, it was me. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you said. I was going to actually ask that question. So you, you say we a lot, but based on the story that I heard a few weeks ago, you were the driver, and, and I think. Yeah, business owners in general, I hear them use the we language a lot because they're not really willing to, on some level, completely own the fact that they have actually created it. And I do find myself doing that as well when I'm, and I'm inclusive of my team and they're incredible people and I'm, I'm blessed to have them and, and it's just amazing. But in the end, without the me, there wouldn't be the we. And and sometimes as business owners, I think we need to remember that we are the ones that actually are the visionary, the creator, we've done this. And I suppose one thing I'm hearing here is uh, the serial nature of your entrepreneurial uh, actions. What is that driver? What's the fuel that, that or that fire that keeps you going from doing this, having a partnership in the UK, coming to Australia, getting into the clinics and then expanding it, then merging it and then buying one skincare range, then buying a makeup brand and combining your existing skincare with that. And like, why? What is it that gets you up in the morning? So I think I think it's all started at a place where I just wanted my own independence. So as I shared a bit with you with the uh, Mastermind group, my sort of early childhood was not a particularly happy one. Age 13, I decided to leave home and as soon as I possibly could and started making plans to do so. And so I think I've just always sought this independence, not being reliant on anybody else for money, not having anyone tell me what to do. And then I don't know whether I just naturally talented at finding things to do or recognize the things I should take on or not take on. I don't know what my superhero skill is. I guess good at looking, good at seeing opportunities. But it's not just seeing opportunity though, Deb. It sounds like you grab it with both hands, right? you know, squeeze the life out of it, so to speak. Like you're not doing it on a half-assed basis. It's like, I'm going to do this. But so by the sounds of it, you're, you're probably somewhat similar to Bill and I where there's always some sort of action. There's always some sort of activity. There's always some, maybe a bit of, you know, ADD or something going on of, of having to be creative. Feed the beast. Being the beast, you know, yeah. making new ideas, uh, thinking of new things, talking to new people, like making, creating stuff out of thin air. Why is that kind of, it sounds very similar. What, what is it about that that drives you as well? I think it's just that my entire sense of self-worth is based on achieving stuff or almost, it's almost like I have to justify my own existence to myself. I don't know whether, you know, it's the right thing to say. Sometimes I've actually thought, have I got a bit of autism going on? Because, you know, one of the traits of some, some people on the spectrum is that they focus obsessively on one thing. And I always say, I genuinely believe I can do anything but I can't do everything at once. And whatever I'm doing, I'm doing well, but it's because usually because that's what I'm doing almost in its entirety. So I, I think that's the thing. Definitely, I believe I have ADD. And as I'm getting older, I am acutely aware it's getting worse. So, um, I'm getting to the point now where I just can't close the voices in my head. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to meditate to get some sanity. I think there's a reason for that. I think you probably lived the average lifetime four times over and therefore there's four times as many memories and experiences and voices and emotions. And I think the poor old brain for people that tend to, you know, feel every day as much as possible <laughs> as you get a bit older, it's like, it's not, not a lot of, we've got the same 86 billion neurons I was born with. Uh, something's got to give. <laughs> I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. And I think, you know, that's something that I'm taking very seriously at the moment. So if I'm working on anything at the moment, obviously apart from the business, is I am working on that for myself just to try and give myself some headspace because I do feel, you know, I'm 58 now. So the years that I've 
this has gone on for is, is enough, really. I do need to get some headspace. But still, even though I'm supposed to be kind of semi-retiring again, I can't imagine how I'm going to fill the days if I stop. I can't stop. No, and I, I feel the same way. One of my goals when I was in my teens, people said, what do you want to do when you grow up? I go, I don't know, but I'm going to retire by the time I'm 35. And they go, what are you, what are you going to do? Do lawn bowls or something? I said, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do then. Now, careful what you wish for is a big thing. You, you said that actually in one of our conversations. I didn't say I wanted to be retired at 35 and you know with $5 million sitting in the bank and a million dollars a year coming. I didn't quite go to that level of detail, but I could have stopped and sat on a beach. Wouldn't have had a hugely lavish lifestyle, but I could have actually stopped at 35. But it's like, to me, retirement is not something that computes in my brain. Like it's like, yes, I'll slow down at times and I'll speed up. And and like you, I believe that focusing on something really intently at the cost of everything else is how I work best. And then what's next? There's no point spreading yourself out and trying to do 18 different things. I tried that, didn't didn't work. All it did was made me much more grumpy, upset, unhealthy and all the rest of it. But I feel that those of us that are driven, that have that achiever kind of personality, that desire to learn new things, to create, are always going to have that desire until our heart stops beating. I just think it's always going to be there, you know, and it's the, the concept of retirement was, was exiting a job that you'd had for your whole life and going there and sitting on your porch on a rocking chair and, and doing nothing. You know, that I couldn't think of anything worse. I mean, my grandmother's 94, 95 next year and has as much energy as I do, you know, in the, my in my 40s. And I think she was, she was fairly entrepreneurial, very much a, a female businesswoman back in the 50s and 60s, which was very, and I, not, not in vogue, but I think – What's inspiring about her, though, is that she just stays active all the time. She's always busy in the house and fixing things up and lives by herself and has a little share trading platform and just constantly, you know, just constantly busy, just doing little things and not resting and reading books and having purpose every day. Yeah. Having some sort of purpose every day. And my my grandfather passed away at 98 and he was completely fit and healthy till about 95. And then his heart started to go. But same thing. His garden was his favorite thing. He would go do ballroom dancing and most of the people were 30 years younger than him. So he'd be like, look, I'm dancing with all these younger women. Um, and he was like a bit of a stud. Or he'd be um, down at the club and, and chatting with the other guys there, and but always had something to look forward to, a reason to to exist and to to continue to exist and to live. And I think I find personally that the vehicle of business and the complexities and the the strategy you've got to come up with and the people you work with, there's so much variety that it's, it's never going to get old. You know, that's how I look at it anyway. And I think also, I think we're meant to be creatures of habits. And if, you know, if you look back when we were hunters, hunters and gatherers, that they would go out hunting and gathering every day. And, you know, I feel like I don't enjoy working at home. I like to get up. I like to have my shower. I like to get dressed and do my makeup, look smart and go out the house for my day. And my day could start at seven, it could start at nine. Sometimes it finishes early, sometimes it finishes late. But I just had that day of purpose that I planned and I had a diary and I did the things. And, you know, if you get me on a weekend, Saturdays and Sundays, I'm really happy not to do too much. So most weekends I do work in between things. My brain doesn't stop, so I'll often do things and put down ideas or blog or whatever. But that's leisurely. I don't know what that's like at all. <laughs> but that's leisurely. And so, yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't know what I would do if I didn't work. It's funny. I've got to find something, though, because it's, you know, not sustainable to do this. Maybe it is. I don't know. 
Well, I'll tie back to your your comment before, Boo, about the concepts of, of potentially, uh, and you know, for business people out there, and something that we're focused on too in in our inner circle group is is about acquiring businesses. And I was chatting with one of my members today, and he's like, I cannot believe how many thousands of businesses are out there for sale. And I'm like, and some of them are really good businesses, and they have no idea how to sell them, they have no idea how to run them, and you could literally get in there and double its value in a matter of three months just by applying good business fundamentals. And if they've gone and invested 10 years to get a thousand clients, why wait another 10 years and go get a thousand clients yourself? If you can buy a thousand clients and particularly use funding from somebody else that's not your money, then it's an incredible vehicle for either getting into a business or growing your business is by by actually acquiring something and, and plugging it in or running it alongside and you get massive economies of scale when you start to have you know multiple businesses running um, again as a business owner not for you to be right to be operating those businesses but for you to be overseeing those businesses as an asset as an investment to me that's that's definitely something I know that my team and I are actually focusing on over the next year and beyond I think there's gonna be a lot more businesses there's obviously a lot more insolvencies that Bill and I were talking about before we jumped on this recording that there's more insolvencies happening and opportunities there I think for people that can take over businesses that have gone into receivership or administration but also those businesses where a lot of a lot of the baby boomers are going to need to get out they're done and, and they don't know they're still running a business like they did 20 years ago. And I think there's huge opportunity for, for business owners to really grow and, and build an incredible you know, future by looking at taking in other businesses. What's your take on that, Deb? Yeah, I absolutely agree. Now, one thing that's always fascinated me is the number of people who want to get out of a business just when they're on the up. It's almost like oh, this is going too fast for me. I'm not sure if I can sustain this. And then they kind of jump back. So they either restrict their own business ability by not making that extra step forward or they try and offload it. And over the years, you know, I've I've met so many people that have done that, whereas I'm kind of the other way around. I don't like the faster it grows, the more exciting it is. So I think, yeah, insolvencies is one thing. People are giving up. I think people also now are giving up. They're probably in businesses that are not going insolvent and they're doing really well, but they're scared and they're thinking, I should get out now while while I know there can be money on the table in case there isn't next year. Mm. And so, yeah, I think the opportunities are huge. They are huge. And equally, time though, isn't it? I mean, some of the businesses that are in the, I guess, the more institutionalised fields, you know, in insurance and banking and finance, some of those are trading at multiples of 15, 20 for, for a small business owner, which is like, insane money and often you think there's always that you know that you, you just pull a Kerry packer right just sell it at the high wait till it goes out of business and then buy it back 20 percent discount you know at, a, at an 80 percent discount <laughs> one thing i did learn in franchising is a lot of people have a kind of an overinflated sort of sense of what they can do and you know we would regularly interview people for the franchises and and just know that they were unable to succeed in a business, that they didn't have the skills or the right mindset. When people are, when there's like lots of redundancies and, you know, there's rumours of recessions, people start to look for businesses like franchises because they believe there's a a better success rate in the franchises. And there is in the franchise world, there is a lesser failure rate. Because you've got more, generally more support, haven't you? So buying into a franchise, you've generally got some other business intelligence behind it. Yeah. You're not just on your own trying to swim with concrete boots on. You've actually got someone that can help you. Yeah, and if, you, if you're if buying into a good franchise system, the franchisor has already heard 
uh, learned the hard lessons. They've already got the systems and procedures. They already know how to make money. But we were often overwhelmed by the number of people who would, would apply for a franchise that we would turn away because they can't follow a system or it was apparent that they wanted to spend every day on the beach. Well, it doesn't matter how good you are at business. The, re the reality is you won't spend every day on the beach if you're trying to make money. So it's quite interesting when you look as well at the longevity of people. When the market's tough for jobs, people take their redundancy payments, invest in another business, whether it's a franchise or not a franchise, and then find that moving from the corporate world to being an entrepreneur and being in your own business is quite difficult. And then they move out of those very quickly. And I think we'll see a lot of that because people are worried about the corporate world and, the, you know, there are redundancies coming and certain things happening. So that will be interesting to watch because I think even a second wave of pickup will, will exist there where people buy businesses and then not do very well with them and then leave and then you can pick up again then. One of the things I've seen too is is a, a strategy that I've seen work successfully and, and uh, obviously this is not advice, get your own advice. Um, I don't want to leave us open to, to some sort of liability inadvertently that uh, buying a number of businesses in the same space and actually rolling them together and again, can create a massive potential uplift in in profitability and in value because you can deduplicate things. You may not need three locations if you buy three businesses. You may only need one. You don't need three bookkeepers. You don't need three accountants. You've got this ability to have one system that you apply across all three businesses, one sales and marketing system, one CRM, one admin person can then run three businesses worth of clients rather than three. And there's this ability to roll in together multiple businesses to create a much more substantial business and one that's worth a higher multiple of profit if you were to then go and sell it because it's a much more stable business as well. And in the end, business is a system. And I think people forget that. They overcomplicate it with emotion and not knowing. And the simple thing is, particularly in Australia, people don't ask for help, right? Yeah. She'll be right, mate. Oh, I'm just got to keep pushing on. You a know, few more beers and the pain will A few more beers. And, you know, okay, I'll, I'll do more hours. That'll fix it. Didn't work for me either. But it's about actually learning how to do it and get the support, you know, like, and, and you said it, one of your first managers that you had in very early in your career, that to me sounded like, you know, some mentoring advice for you. How important is having people that have either been mentors or like mentors in your journey? How has that impacted you on, on, on you know, throughout your own journey? I would say I've never had one mentor the whole time, obviously, because it's been a great many years. And because the way my career was moving so quickly in those early years, to be fair, not many people were around for long because we were all doing that. But I think over the years, I've taken really good pearls from lots of people. You know, I've got a whole basket full of them. Kind of on that point, you just said about one marketing person come from market for however many. When I started rolling out the Australian skin clinics, I believe my one marketing person could market 10 clinics. And that proved to be absolutely impossible. So I think we had, by the time we were at seven clinics, we had three marketing people. So sometimes the economy of scale isn't quite as great as you think it's going to be. And I'm currently involved at the moment with a group who are buying up dermatology clinics, hair transplant clinics, anesthetic clinics, skin cancer clinics. For exactly that, we're looking to build a super brand with you know, a much more cohesive management and admin structure, and then all these outreach clinics. And you see that happen in a lot of industries at the moment. It's happened in dental, it's happened in optometry. So yeah, you're seeing it in GPs and things like that as well. So would, are you doing that with the intention, the end in mind is to then sell what you create, that that 
more robust, stronger, more valuable entity, a larger entity, yeah, to then absolutely. exit that. And, yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the trick is always to build something that is big enough for someone to want to buy it, but there's still room for growth for them to take it. So, yep. you know, you wouldn't want to build it to its maximum because nobody will want it. Then nobody will pay yep. the top dollar then. So you build yep. it to, you know, the next level. Nice, nice. So you've learned a lot in your uh, illustrious 30-year career, 30 years of life, or, or just say it was about 30, I think you said you were. So what, what is it you've learned in this whole entire journey? And, and if you were to go back to a younger version of you who's kind of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, trying to figure out what to do next, what are some of the things that you would actually take back and want to teach yourself or tell yourself to help you on your journey? That be careful what you wish for, because every time I started out on a business or a new venture, you know, I always, I'm really good at looking where it's going to be. So I go from A to Z in one leap and then make the plan halfway between. I always spawn a monster. So it's become a bit of a joke and it always gets unwieldy and it saps you in and then you have to unentwine yourself. So maybe to get more help earlier, maybe might be one of mine. I've had a blast. So I always had a no regret policy, whether that's about business relationships, anything I've ever done. But I think I'm also good at learning from my mistakes, but maybe I'd say to myself, make less mistakes. One of the absolute things that I say to everybody I meet is really be careful who you go into business with. I was in partnership with this group of eight doctors for, like I said, nearly 18 years. And that was amazing. And in a way that spoiled me, that left me unprepared for things that were to happen later. So, um, yeah, be careful who you go into business with is, is the, the big lesson. That's one thing I might have done differently. I was lucky. I had the complete beast to start with, the oh. psychopath. It's the best. They're the best lessons you learn. Uh, and, you know, I think when you're, a transparent, good person with good heart and genuine intent and willing to share and inclusive, you get sidelined by those who are working to different motives and, you know, with a different ethic and a different intent. And it's, you know, once bitten, never again, that's for sure. Yeah, that's a great advice. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development, and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. Awesome. Well, Deb, it's been incredible to uh, have another conversation with you and uh, to share this with our the few audience. But I uh, wanted to say a massive thank you for sharing some of your story, your insights, your grit, determination. It's very inspiring. You're, uh, I think, third time lucky with retiring. Let's see how that goes. I'd love to hear, hear you keep us in the loop with how that travels. But other than that, massive thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, Deb. And you'll find links to Deb's universe in our show notes. Make sure you reach out to her, get her to speak at your next event, because honestly, the best lesson you'll ever learn is from somebody that has owned and operated their own business. I don't think there's anything Deb hasn't done and couldn't provide some pretty meaningful and high value feedback. So thanks again, Deb. Thank you.
Thank you. Thanks. This has been the View Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The View Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at viewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of The Few. We'll see you next week.